0: Hello, everybody, and uh, welcome to this next installment of Technically Minded, um, a podcast brought to you by DMW Group, Equidera Company. Um, I hope everybody, as always, is keeping safe and well um, as we continue in these uncertain times. Um, For those of you that are new, and just as a reminder, um, the aim of these podcasts is for us to invite you into the conversations that we're having. Um, as part of our day-to-day, basically in the hope that uh, insights from our colleagues and our partners um, will help you with your problems or might just be interesting to you. Um, But uh, obviously um, we try to cover a range of topics across various sectors and today um, is probably quite a special occasion really because we've got a two-part episode which is unusual for us Um, and we've been joined uh, by uh, one of the I guess local legends on the Leeds technology circuit um, who I'll introduce in a second Um, but effectively the topic for today is going to be is brand loyalty a dying trait in banking? Um, And all of this has has stemmed off of a number of conversations that we've been having. Um, But basically, what we're going to do is we're going to explore some of the disruptive forces that are affecting the more traditional banking products, um, such as savings and mortgages, um, and just have a bit of a conversation about uh, opportunities for innovation and digitisation. Without further ado, I will uh, introduce... um, the people who will be supporting me today. And um, for those that haven't heard my voice before, my name is Kyle Taylor and I'm a managing consultant at DMW Group. Um, I'm joined today by Keith White, who is a director at DMW Group and has a number of years of uh, digital expertise in financial services.
1: You all right, Keith? Hi. Hi, Kyle, how are you doing?
0: Not bad, mate, thank you and welcome. Um, also joined by um, Stephen Trainer, who is one of our solutions architects um, and has had a number of years implementing um, a variety of different solutions in uh, FS organisations. How are you doing, Stephen?
2: Doing well. Nice to meet you all.
0: Thanks. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, the uh, local legend in Leeds that we have uh, recently started a conversation with this on and thus invited him in. Um, Julian Wells has joined us today from uh, Whitecap Consulting. Um, And also, uh, as many might know him, he is one of the leads of Fintech North, if not the lead, um, if I'm not wrong now, Julian.
3: Hi, Kyle. Thanks a lot. Good to be good to be
0: here. Thanks very much. Um, and welcome, Julian. Um, it's nice to have you on board. And thanks for giving up the time to um, have this conversation with us. Uh, so without further ado, um, we'll jump straight into it. Uh, so we've got a couple of different um elements we're going to talk about today as I mentioned before it's a two-part episode so um, we'll be releasing this um at our sort of usual time of the month and there will be a follow-up uh, not too long after um, but there's a lot to discuss in this space so uh hence um splitting the conversation um getting into it then so uh basically our first talking point of today um is really around what is the current state of play um for uh, I guess brand loyalty and banking and, and again relating back to those sort of more traditional products that we uh, mentioned earlier um, and are there really uh, some you know key influences that have have caused um, accelerated change um, in that state of play uh, in the near uh, or in the recent uh, past I should say not near future um, that would uh, be asking us all to have a crystal ball which I'm not sure is really possible and um, Keith, uh, I will come to you first if that's okay, and just get your take on what's going on.
1: Yeah, well, I suppose if you look at if you're looking at the savings and mortgage market, you know you've got a, a typical way of thinking about it is you know you've got your traditional retail banking and building society sectors that provide a lot of that. Uh, those, those products probably the majority coming from some of the bigger names in the in, in the retail banking sector, um, but. Obviously, building society is very, very strong in both savings and mortgages. But that that market really, you know, kind of falls into two th- two areas where, you know, you've either got people who are looking for help in getting a first mortgage, or you know, perhaps have something which means that they they need a little bit of a a more specialist product. Uh, and those people who find getting those products relatively straightforward, but who may well be therefore just chasing the rate. You know, and actually they're looking at where do I get the best deal rather than necessarily looking at the organisation that they're getting it from. You know, as long as they've heard of them uh, and they're, you know, and they feel that they are a stable and worthwhile organisation, you know, the rate seems to make a big difference.
0: Cool. Um, Julian, again, you know, just taking into account your background, um, particularly in, in the fintech space, what's
3: your view on what's going on at the moment? Um, I think I think they're two very different markets, really, um, mortgages and savings. And um, when it, I guess, if you're talking about it in a uh, in a in a way that everyone can understand, if you're borrowing money, you're probably not too worried about who you're borrowing it from, as long as you can get the get get the loan that you want at a rate that you're happy with. Uh, if you're talking about savings, then uh, who you give your money to and uh, and, in, and trust with it is is a bit different and so i always think that the the savings market there's a there's a lot of trust involved there and uh, and some of the things that are themes for us to talk about today uh, around savings you know confidence and brand trust really really big issues there uh, on the mortgage side of things i think accessibility to to products is, is probably more um you know more more the kind of key driver so uh, so different dynamics um in terms of what's happening it's been a Funny last year or so, for obviously for lots of reasons, but the um, you know the mortgages and savings markets actually have been doing really well through that time. Uh, both of them have had a, a really good year. Uh, there's been a lot of uh, a lot of spare money around in the economy. Obviously not for everybody, but um, you know a, a, lo- a lot of savings balances uh, building up. Lots of the financial providers reporting good good years on that front. And then on the mortgage side, lending's really held up. Um, supported by things like stamp duty holidays, um, and you know some of the rules around uh, and around the lockdowns being flexed, that people can still do things like view houses and, and move house. So, uh, so they actually, the you know both markets are in good health, considering we've just gone through a pandemic or going through a pandemic.
0: Sure, um, that's really interesting to hear, because obviously we don't um, hear all too often of um, people keeping afloat during um, the uncertain times that we're currently in, basically. Um, But, Keith, was there something that you wanted to
1: add to that? Yeah, well, I was just going to add to that. Yes, I mean, it has, you know, the markets in in both cases, you know, they've done well by comparison to to many other markets. And in some cases, they've, they've exceeded expectations. But there have been different trends as well. So you've seen a lot more move to, online banking and online services, you know, even just in the first part, first lockdown, you know, back which, believe it or not, was almost a year ago, you know, you had a sort of 30% increase in people using online banking, you know, and so that had an impact on who people were going to for savings, you know, particularly if you were looking for a new savings product, so you were changing savings product, the digital channel started to become much more important. And even as you started to look at demographics, then you saw I think it was Halifax reported that they saw something like a, a doubling in the number of over 60s who were using online banking, you know, back in back in March, April time of, of 2020. And that trend, by anything we can see, has continued. There hasn't been a drop-off in the use of online banking. If anything, there's probably been a slight increase on that. So irrespective of the demographic, whereas previously some organisations would have said, well, actually, you know, this part of our of our target market, you know, they want the physical channel. Actually, people have not been using the physical channel for for a lot of day-to-day stuff and a lot of stuff that they would have in the past because of lockdowns, because of fears about, you know, COVID restrictions, social distancing, and so on, that accelerated the move into the digital channel, which is unlikely to go away, even as, you know, lockdowns start to ease, probably not, well, possibly, we hope, by the autumn of this year
0: fingers crossed. Um, Stephen I know that you're chomping at the bit to get involved in the conversation and Keith is so far just hogging the microphone so what are your thoughts on what's going on?
2: Yeah so I was just going to touch really on Julian's point there around mortgages. I think people's perception of how they live and where they want to live has changed. Covid's really changed that point of view. I mean I've seen it firsthand. I live in a small flat in London I've never been more appreciative of having a garden which most people don't but it's made me want to look at maybe moving out of the city, um, also renovating the property to get it to a nice state, which also sort of fuels the need to move, which is with the stamp duty holidays, just increase that need. So I think quite a lot of people are in the same same boat as me here um, thinking that and changing the whole perspective of where they want to live. So I think that's definitely speeded up their market around mortgages. Cool. I think all three of
0: you have raised this point about... Um, Demographics. So maybe just um, let's explore that a little bit because I think it's an important part of this conversation, really. Um, so Keith, obviously you touched on um, you know a greater amount of uh, adoption with online banking um, in a demographic which typically you wouldn't associate with online banking if you were kind of looking at it in in the stereotypical way. Um, and, and I guess at the opposite end of of, of the spectrum uh Stephen you've kind of given your sort of anecdotal experience um of what's going on um but I guess the question that I would have in there is who do we think has been maybe the most impacted it'd be interesting to hear what your differing thoughts are um Julian I might just come to you with with that first because I appreciate you do plenty of thinking on this kind of stuff
3: so most impacted in terms of the um, the customer groups. Yes. Yeah. Well, I think yeah the 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 way that uh, the way people engage with financial services and product well products and services is um, is really interesting and it's not always quite as uh, as obvious as it might seem. I think uh, we 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 can fall into a trap of thinking that the the younger generations are very tech savvy and want to do everything electronically and the older generations maybe maybe less so but uh, I think there's quite a lot of insight now that shows that um, that actually the 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 people that you might consider to be older uh, let's say 40s 50s 60s um, are actually pretty pretty savvy managing their finances online and um, and people who've had the experience of, uh, of buying a house in the past quite happy to to go through that process in a you know in a fairly sort of a um, uh, fairly kind of a straightforward process without necessarily spending a lot of time talking to someone or, or wanting a face-to-face engagement. Whereas with mortgages, some of the younger um, younger people, first-time buyers, they, they don't know, they don't understand that product, and so they have a more of a more of a need to to sit in front of someone, uh, whether that's on a screen or or face-to-face, and and develop more of an understanding of the product. Uh, so so I think there's there's quite a few uh, there's quite a few customer groups and things are quite different, um, particularly on the mortgage side. With with savings, it's maybe it's maybe the other way around. So the younger people are much more happy doing things digitally, um, expect to be able to move their money around you know the, the drop of a hat. And uh, and then you've obviously got the you know the older more traditional um, savers who if If you think about high street branches, they they kind of like to go in and out of the branch, and uh, and to feel like they have some kind of uh, personal relationship with the institution that is looking after their savings. So so there's there's quite a lot of variance there, I think. And and in terms of how things have changed over the last year, obviously the uh, the use of cash has gone right down. Um uh use of well, although payment volumes are, are also right down because of the just 'cause the restrictions we've all had on life, the um you know, the percentage of electronic payments has, has gone up. Um don't have a, a number to hand. I think some areas have, have struggled a bit in payments where international transactions because people aren't moving about between country and country, but uh but but really we've moved towards a more digital a more digital financial economy and uh and, and everyone's had to up upskill to a degree, uh, some 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 age groups more than others.
0: Thanks. Keith, do you want to jump in on that point? I don't know if you've
1: got anything to add. Yeah, I think, I, I, think I, I, I think I agree very much with one of the things that Gillian was saying there, that a lot of it now is, I think, from a, is it a demographic shift or is it a, a, a shift based on need and objective or a you know, financial goal? And I think much more what you're actually seeing is it depends on what somebody's trying to do rather than necessarily what demographic they fall into that's, that that fuels which cho- what is the choice of channel you know that they want to go through so if you know if if i'm doing something that feels pretty routine to me and i understand it then actually possibly you know covid in, in particular has accelerated this trend but i'm more likely to want to do that online i'm more likely to want to do that myself in, in a digital channel be that on a website be that in an app so if I'm comfortable with, you know, product switching on my mortgage, you know, the mortgage product's coming to an end, I'm coming to the, end of the discount period, you know, I want to, I want to renew for a new one, you know, and I'm happy with my existing provider. If I can do that in two clicks, job done. It's a good and I can go and have a cup of tea. Everybody's happy. You know, um, if I, if I've, you know, realised that I'm not, I'm not commuting to work, and therefore I'm, you know, I'm not buying lunch anymore. I'm saving fifty quid a month. You know, do I want to put that into a savings account? Well, I could put that into a savings account. It's a fairly simple thing. I can just set something up online, either with my bank or with another provider. And that's one of the things we want to that's what I think about is some of the sort of disrupting providers in, the, in that kind of market. I'll do that online because it's easy. But actually, if I want to do something which is more difficult or something I've not done before, maybe I'm looking at long term investment, you know, so I'm looking at a longer term product. You know, because of that. actually there's something maturing or whatever. I've got lucky, or I've been, I've got, I've inherited some money. I'm looking somewhere to put five or ten thousand pounds for one, two, three years. I might want to talk to somebody about the best product for that. You know, or if I'm a first-time buyer, I'm going to want to talk to somebody about how do I go through the process of applying for a mortgage and understanding all the different things I need to do because it's confusing. I've never done it before. That's perhaps become more difficult and organizations need to think more imaginatively about how do i provide that service and that advice within a regulated environment that somebody can access and do i want them to be able to start it in one particular way and channel and be able to transfer to another you know and i think right right now the the, the crossover between voice and online or voice and digital is becoming very 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 important um and that's somewhere which i think you know Some of the slicker, bigger organisations might have started to get it right, but others are probably finding it more difficult. And it may be that's where some of the new entrants to the market are starting to to, to see an opportunity. Sure.
0: Um, Stephen, Keith kind of mentioned um, there about, uh, I guess, combining multiple technologies in the customer journey. And I know that's a big part of your day to day. So it'd be interesting to get your take on on that point.
2: Yeah, sure. So I suppose if you look at the digital disruptors in the market, um, let's first look at retail banking. That's changed dramatically over the last five years. You've got the likes of Monzo that are producing personalized based journeys for customers, giving them what they really want, real time feedback. Um, And that sort of hit uh, retail banking um, out of nowhere. They didn't see it as a threat. And it's clearly becoming a threat. You've also got then your sort of robo advisory, like your nutmegs and your wealthifies, who are looking at savings um, from a digital channel perspective, but also trying to pull people then into the advisory routes as well, where they can really make money. So it's sort of combining those omni-channel journeys together for a digital platform. I think where we haven't seen it so much is is in the mortgage industry. There's a few digital startups that focus on mortgages, but not as hard hitting as your monzos or your your nutmegs. So I think that's going to be something we'll we'll definitely see over the the next few years, breaking the market. So it'll be interesting to see how the likes of bond societies will be able to counteract that or banks will be able to counteract that.
1: I think one of the things that might help there or be a threat there is of course the, the changing view on regulation in the mortgage market coming from the FCA. So the idea that you can have an advice light route which would be what the kind of robo advice would need as a as a route to be able to support. You know that's looking, you know, or has become something that the FCA is willing to consider. So it's you know the, the how does that, how therefore the you know, the aggregators and the platforms start to support that opportunity and what that how that impacts on, um, you know, vanilla mortgage units in particular, so standard residential mortgages. Is going to be quite interesting, and I suspect we're going to see that that will actually happen with product transfer first, you know, mm-hmm. because it, it actually it's people who are used to the more concept of mortgages that are most likely to be willing to to, to take those kind of risks because they're already doing it with their existing provider and they change product.
3: It all comes down to to data, I think, doesn't it? You, you've got you've got to have the ability to <clears throat> capture and process data. Uh, probably across multiple systems and multiple partners in a journey in order to to be able to give someone accurate advice and take them through a, a process in a in a way that they're comfortable with and they're happy with so uh, if you um if you think about the way that a a mortgage application would typically happen sort of pre-digital you you've got a customer talking to a a, a broker broker writing things down and right then sending that off to a lender then a lender assessing it then the valuer gets above the solicitor um you, you got all the checks along the way there it's, it's possible now because everything's sort of driven by data that you can capture the details of that customer at the, that initial point of their inquiry and you can immediately draw in a whole load of answers to the questions you would like to ask them you need to ask them less stuff you can move them through the process faster and if you can then kind of integrate from your Initial point of inquiry straight into a, a lender's decisioning tool or multiple lenders' decisioning tools, then you can just start making that a really nice seamless journey. And then it's balancing it with the regulatory point that Keith's making And how seamless do you want to make that? Because if I can if I can fill out a form in five minutes now and have a mortgage an hour later, did um, I know what I was getting myself into? And uh, and you need a you, you need a bit of friction in the process at the right times to to make sure people have a bit of a sense check and go through those compliance loops. I think that's where the sort of the balancing act is in the mortgage market at the moment. The technology is there to do the whole thing straight through if if people wanted to, um, but I think the the regulators not comfortable with that and because of the the sort of responsibilities they they put on the the lenders and the advisors, then the lenders and advisors aren't comfortable with that either because that's just exposing them to risk. Um, and, and problems further down the line.
1: And I think that's that's why I can you, know, you can see in standard residential mortgages that kind of thing coming in, probably through, as I say, through you know um, remortgaging and product and product renewal earlier than through new applications. But at the same time, it's probably that part of the market is probably the most competitive anyway you know, and it's, and it's probably where an awful lot of the, 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 you know, focus might be, but actually there's an awful lot of business in other mortgage segments that actually, you know, probably don't lend themselves to that, but actually, you know, Julian's point about data and technology supporting it and making it a less scary experience, and a less difficult journey, is probably quite, is probably just as important, mm-hmm. you know, if you think people who are, who would find a, you know a residential mortgage harder or you're thinking of buy to let or you're thinking of holiday let or you're thinking of retirement you know retirement mortgages and that sort of thing where more specialist lending is involved there's still a role for open data open banking in making that easier for customers and making it a better customer experience even though it probably not going to quite get to the you know five minute automated mortgage that you might see you know an aggregator trying to advertise you know in a few years time you know for a standard residential mortgage yeah, you know, well, actually, you know, in all probability, it's the big banks that have got you know 78% of that market anyway.
3: When you when you think about it like that, some of those more complex mortgages, it, I think thinking about building societies is a really good example because for those guys, a lot of the the mortgages they're granting, in fact, nearly pretty much all the mortgages they're granting are, are being reviewed by a person and uh, and there's a manual decision point that uh, that that takes place before the mortgage goes through but that doesn't mean that you can't automate or uh, streamline a lot of the the processing that underlines the, that that the process of that person getting a mortgage so you can still get lots of process efficiency for the the customer and the lender and the the broker as well by by making sort of data and technology help you through that process, even though you then have a stop point where a person looks at it because a person needs to because it's too complicated. There's too many, there's too much judgment involved for uh, um, an AI sort of driven um, you know, technology to to make that decision for them. And I think that's there's a real, real balance there for for that group in particular of manual and digital.
0: thanks so. guys i think that's a really um there's a couple of elements to the conversation that we've we've just had there one sort of around uh, this sort of uh, i'll use the wave of disruption analogy that we're currently riding um but also we've mentioned a few different examples so like retail banks and building societies there as, as some of the people that provide these kind of products Um i i wonder just just combining those two things with the way things are going do we think that um I guess sort of traditional USPs are being dissolved and now it's, I guess we've we've touched on the element of it being more product centric. So are we moving towards product centricity and, and the USP disappearing for different types of organisation? Um, I just wondered if, uh, I'll start with you, Julian, because I guess you were the last to comment on that.
3: Yeah, def- I, I think uh, for me, this is one of the most interesting points and one of the most interesting debates in the, in the sector at the moment, like where, where's the, uh, the line going to fall between, uh, uh, brand and, uh, and product and, uh, how are people going to make decisions? And I think it's probably going to be a case of people will do what they feel most comfortable with. Um, uh, but I, I think there's some good challenges in there for the providers of the products. So, uh, if you look at things like open banking and automation and the role of aggregators and um, that just they, the, the efficiency with it, with which the customer can see all the data around products and pricing, it's very easy to imagine that you can make a decision based on price and, pr- and nothing else. And, and you, you could just work that way. Some people might be happy to work that way. Um, I think the you know, the challenge for the providers is to to try and build up the, the, the sort of that, the strength of other reasons why people might want to go with them so uh that could be the, the strength of their brand the the reputation that they have for service and delivery or customer service um it might be sort of non-price based benefits that they give with with products and services and all of those things it might just be uh their heritage and reputation as well for some of the the, the more established financial institutions but all of those things can can lead you to uh, if you imagine a customer going on a, a product the price comparison tool getting a whole load of names and thinking yeah they're top but I, I have not heard of them those guys that are sixth I know them for whatever reason or they looked up to me before or you know they've got a great they've got five stars for service the one that's come out tops only got one star for service it, it, it's it's trying to uh trying to figure out what will drive people's behaviors and and then to, to to focus on that but really hard for the product providers I think a little bit scary for them because if it's a if it became a battle on price and price alone, it's a bit of a race to the bottom then that's not really good for, for anyone. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, Stephen, I know that you want to uh, jump in, but just something to maybe think about. Um, I think that was a really interesting point you raised there. Julian is kind of, um, I I guess that market reviews, let's call it that. Uh, It's not really the term I want to use, but it's almost like brand loyalty, um, by a degree of separation mm. um, which you know is, is kind of the whole purpose of the conversation today but I'll just add that into the pot maybe um, for you to ruminate on Stephen because I know you want to jump in.
2: Yeah so I think there's definitely been a shift to people wanting to connect with brands that align to their interests you can see it with the younger generation they're very focused on ethical brands they're, they're willing to pay more Um, And yes, there's the whole um, get the cheapest product, but I think that is slowly changing, um, especially with the Gen Z um, generation. Um, There's been loads of stats out there. I think McKinsey done a study um, looking at, I think they said they're 70 percent more likely to buy a product if it aligns to their um, ethical interests. Um, And that that shifts it, really. That 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 brings back the USPs of some of these uh, organizations. It's no longer a price war. It's about what they're actually selling, what the product represents. That
1: was the point I wanted to add. I, th- I think that's right. I think the, the challenge, though, um, in an increasingly digital-driven marketplace, is how does the brand get that message out there? You know, so where you've got going back to what Julian was saying, you've got that immediacy of I can go on an aggregator, I can do a search for, you know, a mortgage product or a savings product, you know, and I can. You know, and I can get a list and I can get a list by price or I can get a list by customer service. But how do how do I as a brand get across my my differentiators in a world that's being um, mediated by somebody else to decide what what information gets put in front of the consumer? And that's that's the challenge of how do you make that th- those those connections? You know, And you can see that increasingly, even in the digital, you know, digital world, as it were brand relationships. Do I have a relationship with the brand? And can I have a relationship with the brand is becoming more important. And if you think what Stephen was saying about, you know, people wanting ethical brands, well, how do I know you're ethical? How do I trust that what you, when you're telling me you're ethical, that you actually are ethical? How do I get a relationship that, that demonstrates those ethics? What do I do? And it, and I think there is, there is something there for brands to be thinking about how, do, how can I use digital channel, multi-channel, omni-channel to create a relationship with my consumers or with the prospects who I might want to become my consumers in the future? How do I build those relationships of trust, which actually will will, will generate sale and will generate business? Because it's, you know, the other challenge for people is that it is more costly to get new business than to retain business. I mean, that's just, you know, it's been true for you know, decades, centuries, of, you know, for any type of business, constantly having to win new business is more costly than retaining business I've already got. You know, but if actually business turns into just churn because of it's it's driven by price, then that becomes a real challenge for I I think particularly for mid mid tier, you know, tier two banks, building societies in particular, mm. you know, in savings and mortgages, it becomes really difficult for them.
3: Yeah. The, the other the other challenge there with some of that um aggregator stuff or you know um the middleman is that it's another cost so they're competing on price but then they're also not not getting all the benefit because someone else is is sort of intermediate intermediating the uh the transaction for them um but i think you know that 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 leads on to another train of thought around um uh the impact of open banking and the that the the way that the way that savings products in particular i think could be sold via aggregators taking that brand out of the equation you 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 wouldn't even necessarily need to know the brand in some cases uh it it could even be white labeled behind someone else you 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 can if you can see the product characteristics that's that's one of the other risks to to brands is that they they get that far down the I know it's kind of the, it's a really similar point to the one you were making, Keith. But they get they get that far removed from the customer that they just lose that touch point anyway. And the the brands more with your kind of um, you know money supermarket or go compare or whoever it is. And that's where the loyalty lies. So we're not, we're not at that point at the moment. But there's a lot of those, there's a load of new fintech brands come out over recent years that are filling that gap really using open banking to just plug themselves into other people's products and present this sort of marketplace. View to uh, to the customer, and the customer becomes more loyal to that to that connection than the than the end product providers.
1: Yeah, in a world of low low rates, that becomes really challenging, doesn't it? Because then actually margin is, is just continually eroded. You know, as financial service organisations just become you know effectively product manufacturers. Yeah. Yeah, and then you just get more margin erosion, which means you get more rate erosion for the consumer.
3: Yeah. And so some brands don't go on price comparison sites because they don't they don't want to for brand and brand and commercial reasons. The, again, some really interesting points there, and,
0: and you know part of the reason why we're splitting this into a two part conversation because there's so many avenues that we can go down. Um, there was something in there around, um, uh, and I, I'll just use this as our penultimate talking point for today. But there was something in there around. Um, attracting people to your brand um and we've used um aggregators and you know what we can do with open data as, as examples there i just wonder you know especially considering uh, the situation that we're in right now where we're you know progressing to you know what could look like 18 months two years of you know forced distancing basically which is something i don't think anybody expected are there any kind of um other technologies that we see coming in that might I guess assist
1: people in that position I don't know I, I, I'm not sure I've seen anything I've seen existing channels accelerate and so that's what I would say is so you know so the the, the, the tradit. I'm going to say traditional um you know, the default digital channel has accelerated and the adoption of it has accelerated. Have we seen much, you know, expansion into digital assistants or, you know, Alexa and so on? Don't know if we really have Didn't seen that, but you could say, well, actually, as more and more people are staying at home, if you want to get engaged, that could happen. Yeah, but then also I think, you know, but what you have seen is is video conferencing. Video conferencing, and, and you know, you know has grown. We're all using it a, a, an awful lot more you know, we're using it hours every day. And some of the providers out there, some of the big banks in particular, are starting offering, you know, video, video meetings and things like that. So that's potentially something that you could see staying and growing and changing, particularly the mortgage market.
3: Mm. Yeah, I, I think some of the more interesting tech developments might be less visible um, to uh, to the end customer. I think things like AI, and um, uh, robotic process automation. I think that they're the sort of behind-the-scenes efficiency gains that um, that will start coming into the way products and services are delivered. But we might not all know that they're uh, might not all know that they're happening. I think some of the uh, some of the benefits of open banking are a bit behind the scenes as well. And um, you know, a lot of the debate around adoption there is really it's how much we know about adoption. People, a lot of people use these things without even realizing. Uh, so I think I think I think it might be a bit a bit one step removed from uh, from what everyone sees. It might be where some of the real the real changes are.
2: Yeah, so I'd agree with you, Julian. I I mean one of the things that's definitely happening behind the scenes is mobile apps are being um, iterated and improved at a rate a lot quicker than we're we're used to. I mean if you look at your mobile banking app and you look at the release notes, you can see how how often that's happening now. And that's the appro- improvements of the back end development process that we're not visible for, but we just see the, the nice features at the end of the day. So it's, I think you're right. I think a lot of it is behind the scenes and it's stuff we're now taking for granted.
1: Mm. Uh, so I guess the final thing of that is, you know, is probably the advances in data analytics. You know? So the ability to, to capture and use data better. And to be able to, you know, to to gain insights and to gain thoughts about what you, what needs to be done, what needs to be communicated, what changes can benefit a brand. Um, that's you know that's growing at a, a rapid pace as well. But again, as Julian and Stephen have said, that's probably behind the scenes from the consumer, but it is influencing what the consumer will see and get in the future.
0: Sure. Um, no, thanks for the insight there, chaps. Um, and sorry to uh, uh, throw that conversation at you, um, but I thought that it was quite an interesting point that um, seemed to be coming out of what you were all saying. Um, our last uh, talking point for today, and, and as I say, the conversation doesn't end today. We'll have another episode on this to uh, try and, um, you know, distill uh, what is a very wide range of um, topics and discussions into um, something short and succinct. Um, but the last question I have for you all today is uh, we've mentioned a couple of um, different players. So we've mentioned fintechs, for example. We've mentioned retail banks and we've mentioned building societies all as part of the conversation. And um, I, uh, I, I say this, we don't all have to agree um, when I ask this question. Um, it'd be interesting to get everybody's individual take. But of, of those three organisations or organisational types that I mentioned, who do we individually feel is is sort of best positioned to innovate and gain um you know from the way things are going um and, and and why uh stephen i've not gone to you first yet so I'll, I'll come to you first to uh close this out
2: okay sure so i suppose if i look at those three different so you've got the the startups you've got the building societies you've got the retail banks so i i think you look at the retail banks. You look at the building society, They've got the customer base. They've got the data. They've got the brand loyalty. You've got the fintechs that have got the ability to deliver change quickly and personalised user experience. I do think the building societies fall in between those two. So they've got the trust and they've got the customer base. And if they innovate quick and build out solutions, they can they could rapidly uh, they could rapidly move their position in the market. So I think I'd say that they're very well positioned. Um, and I think probably the best approach would be looking at an innovation first environment. So building out, I've seen it before, where they build out a separate department, focusing on innovation, run up like almost like a startup. Uh, and with a test and learn approach to development, um, using their existing customer base as a sample and really learn from that. Cool. Uh, I'll maybe uh,
0: pass the microphone to you, Julian, and then I'll. Pastor Keith to uh, close us out.
3: It's a really hard question to answer with just one group because I think they've all got different advantages. If you think the you know the, the banks have got the the scale of customer, the uh, the bandwidth uh, to be able to invest in, in in sort of tech and innovation, so you could argue they're very well placed. The fintechs, they're kind of innovators by default. You know they're, they're born that way. The challenge that they've got is how many people can they innovate for because they haven't got the customers um you know, hence why you see so many partnerships between fintechs and other companies and then with the building societies it's quite a unique challenge for them a lot of things about the building society sector are quite unique but you could argue that they've got the um the social purpose that uh, that they've made maybe they're maybe best aligned to the way that society is starting to think um, but they've probably got more challenges around the, their ability to, uh, to to sort of truly innovate with tech because of their, the scale they've got, the resources they've got available, and the, the amount they can invest in in tech and innovation. So I guess ideally you want a mix of the three, don't you? Um, you know, someone who can make a high impact on a big number of customers using really really clever tech and having a strong uh, you know a strong ethical approach to the the way that they do business. So there you go, all three of them. How's that for a, a not answer? <laughs> Very democratic, is, is how I would, I would put that. Um, Keith,
1: what are your thoughts? I, did, I was listening to, to what Stephen and Jim were saying. I think I probably, I probably sort of agree and disagree simultaneously with with, with everything that's just been said. But um, as you would expect me to. Uh, but I think, it, yeah, if you look at as yeah, so well, I, I would look at it. It was not so much who's got the capability. Because I think they've all got the capability to innovate. The question is, who's got the desire and the demand? And the, the challenge for the, the, the big retail banks is, do they really need to? You know, what you know, if you look at where, where, where they are innovating, it's you know, is it are they innovating in spaces where they already play play well and they are strong and they are managing that they're managing their market penetration as opposed to really delivering something truly innovative into the market that is going to change the market. Is going to move a dial, I wonder. And I wonder, given that, that by and large, their PLCs, are they constrained by that corporate um, situation in terms of how far they really can go? And that, that's an interesting challenge for them, to balance that, that 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 corporate demand and that market demand and that market position. It's really quite an interesting difficult thing for them to, 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 to manage, I think. is, And we don't give them credit for how difficult that might be. Fintechs, as Julian said, they they are innovators by default, but actually by and large, they're still building up their customer base. And so actually, there's only so much innovation they can do without customers or without bringing in new customers and building that customer base to to actually support more funding. So that's a challenge. And then, alongside the building societies, it also plays some of the tier two banks, and they they've got a they've got a different challenge they perhaps haven't quite got the brand recognition that some of the building societies have. But they've got that space where they could innovate and they could use that as a means of getting a next step and actually genuinely moving a dial for their business just as the building societies could but the building societies have got a history of legacy that we probably will talk about next time but they've got that history of legacy you know in the in their infrastructure and in their business that is perhaps something that's slowing them down and, and hence why Stephen might say well actually can they spin something separate off to accelerate that innovation but that in itself from an organizational perspective might not be as easy to do as it is to describe how you could do it. Um, so I think yeah, I, I would be saying I'd be looking at the Building Society tier two market as being the people that genuinely could innovate more quickly in a sense that would turn their business dial. But I wonder if the, you know if if um, if every if we can all see how they can overcome the challenge of that, that might that might take. Thanks, Keith. Um, and
0: I think just like a good drama on Sky Atlantic, uh, we'll end there with the cliffhanger for the next episode. Um, it's been really interesting to um, be part of this conversation again with you chaps. And, and hopefully it's interesting to share um, with those of us, uh, those of you that are listening. Um, but I guess uh, just a few things to um tidy us up here today um, firstly the second part of this conversation will be coming out at the end of the month um, so please keep your eyes peeled for that if this has interested you um, a massive thank you to you today chaps Julian especially um, for taking the time out on being part of the conversation um, and if anybody does have any questions for us um, you can as always reach out to us via um, dmwgroup.com slash contact us or leave a voice message Um, Or obviously, um, if you would like to speak to Julian directly, um, you can reach out to Whitecap Consulting. Um, As I say, keep your eyes and ears peeled for the next episode. But otherwise, um, thank you all for listening. Take care and speak soon.